0: If you closed your Bible, would you open that great book once again to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll notice especially verses 8 through 16, the providing for the woman and her son in Zarephath. Now, of course, this passage, like all passages of Scripture, have a context in which they are found. And just to review for a moment, we will have noticed previously that Elijah appears on the scene during what we might call the worst of times. Not the only occasion in which we might Um, identify a period of time as the worst of times. But if there was one, it certainly was here at this time. The kingdom has been divided and Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. And as such, he uh, adds to the worship of the people of God and uh, the worshiping of Jehovah through the means of a bull. And so it's a compromise form of worship. And each king seems to become even worse than the one before until we come to Ahab, who marries Jezebel, the princess of the Phoenicians, And what was a sort of blended um, worship now becomes uh, flat-out idolatry. So the worst of times, and we find in the context of the worst of times, a man for the times, which was Elijah. And he raises him up, and um, he uses him to deliver a message to Ahab that judgment was about to fall and that there would be no rain for three years and a famine would engulf the land. And so here's a man for the times, being God's spokesman, preaching to and teaching now a pagan king And his wife, and by extension, of course, to the people of the northern kingdom. We saw thirdly that this man for the times really becomes the precedent for what we might call the terminus of the times or for the times. That is, John the Baptist becomes Elijah return from the dead, not literally, of course, but he supplants him in the words of Jesus who says, yes, this is Elijah come again. And then we see that there's a connection as well. And we saw this last week that there's a week before last that there's a connection between Elijah and Jesus as well on the Mount of Transfiguration as Moses and Elijah uh, and Jesus converse uh, about our Lord's um, death. Um, And so he becomes the successor to Elijah. And again, John the Baptist has come in, or Elijah has come back, come in a very real sense in John the Baptist. And then fourthly, we noticed a God for the times. And that is that God, provides for Elijah. He tells Elijah to go to a particular place, to a particular brook. And there there is sufficient water for Elijah to drink. And the ravens come and feed him twice a day, meat and bread or bread and meat twice a day. And so here are these times and a man for the times and looking even beyond to the time of John and Jesus the terminus, if you will, of those times, successors. Now we have a God for the times who provides for his servant. Now brings us to verses 8 through 16. And I suppose at some point we ask the question, can we continue the the sub-theme and the particular language that you're using for each section? Well, at least one more time. And that is we have... In this particular section, verses 8 through 16, with Elijah's encounter with this particular woman who is a widow, a word for the times. Elijah speaks, and he speaks a word. And as we're going to come to see, it's a gospel word. It's a good word. It's not the same kind of word. It's coming from the same God. But it's not the same kind of word, which is a word of condemnation, a word of judgment that falls upon uh, uh, Ahab and the people. But here is a word of of comfort to a woman who has absolutely nothing. As I came to study the passage of Scripture, I drew the conclusion that what we have here is a kind of a, a kind of mirror a mirror of God's saving grace, a reflection of what God has always done in the salvation of his people. And so here we see God speaking through his servant and this woman receiving enormous blessing as a result. Spurgeon preached on verses 8 and 9, a sermon just on those two verses, and in that sermon he began by saying, let us see what we can gather this morning from the inexhaustible barrel and unfailing cruise of the widow of Zarephath. Roger Ellsworth, who wrote a a little commentary published by the Banner of Truth way back in the 80s, I think, or early 90s said, why should we concern ourselves with Elijah going to a widow's house in Zarephath? The answer is that Elijah is more than just a prophet. He was at this moment in Israel's history, the very embodiment of the word of God. When we look, therefore, at what he did and where he went, we should ask ourselves what these things teach us about the word of God. And so now you have an introduction, but a kind of introduction to how we'll proceed with the rest of the sermon. What does this passage teach us about the word of God? Six things. I think. First of all, notice the word and predestination. Again, those two verses. And the word of Jehovah came unto him saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to sustain thee the word and predestination, more particularly the word and a subset of predestination, which is personal election. These two verses teach us that, that God has a plan. He certainly had a plan on this particular occasion. And the plan included the, uh, uh, the provision or the providing for this widow and her son. And so here's a plan and here's a prophet who fulfills the plan who is, or who is a part of the plan. Here is Elijah who receives the word. God speaks to him, not directly to the woman, but he speaks to Elijah and gives to him the word and Elijah proclaims it. Now, Elijah has already proclaimed the word. He's proclaimed a word of condemnation to Ahab. The word of the Lord had come to him previously. A word of condemnation to Ahab and the idolatrous woman. Excuse me, the idolatrous nation. But now he preaches a word of salvation to a particular woman. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but did did Elijah know who the woman was? There's nothing to indicate that he did. He just meets a woman and he speaks to her and we don't know what he knew about her at all. But it's a woman outside of Israel in another place in Baal's backyard, the idolatrous God, of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. It's interesting how the Lord Jesus puts this in the New Testament, in the book of, or the Gospel of Luke. You remember Luke preaches in his hometown on, on a particular occasion early on in his ministry. And the people are questioning who is this? Who is this? This is Joseph's son. Who, who is Joseph's son? And in response to all of that, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. And then he amplifies upon that and, and gives, a, well, further amplification and application. He says this, but I, of a truth I say unto you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when there came a great famine over all the land, and unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon unto a woman that was a widow. And then the next verse, and he says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. So Elijah's successor, Uh, Elisha, Elijah's successor, had the same kind of experience. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And so Elijah is told to go to a foreign place, to people who were not his own, and to speak to a particular Woman, which would be words of comfort to her. Why did God send Elijah to such a faraway place, some 50 to 80 miles from where he was? This woman was not seeking God. There's nothing in verse 9 that suggests that he, she was. And in verse 12, she addresses Elijah and she refers to the Lord as his God. And so there's nothing here that would suggest, well, she was worthy of Elijah's ministry of the word that she had. She had touched the heart of God because of her her good works, her good deeds, because she she was, after all, a believer, even a secret believer. There's nothing in the text at all that says that. In fact, it would suggest the very opposite. And so here is a word, this word of God that we're reading and that we're studying, that points in the direction of God's Choice of election. I'm going to send you to a woman who is a widow. And we'll come to this in a minute. And I have commanded her. How did he do that? So he's speaking to the woman as well. Spurgeon wrote, some men hate the subject of divine sovereignty. But those that are called by grace love it. For they feel if it had not been for sovereignty, they never would have been saved. If it were not for sovereignty, they never would have been saved. And so you have then, first of all, the word and predestination, or more specifically, divine election. Secondly, notice the word and intention, God's intention. Who is it that this, or who is it that Elijah has been sent to address? Well, we're told a number of things about her. First of all, notice her patrimony. That is her background, her parentage, if you will, in the sense that she was a Gentile. The Lord Jesus identifies her as such as well in Luke 4, which we already read. We discover here in this text that in a very real sense, the, the intention of God to draw the Gentiles to himself is hinted at even here. We find incidents of it of the, in the Old Testament. Certainly, here's an incident with this woman and also Naaman the Syrian. It is kind of a, a portent, a, a prophecy of what takes place in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius preaches and these Gentiles are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And as Cornelius in chapter 11 gives an account of what takes place, the response of the people hearing is something like, surely God has come to the Gentiles or sent his word to the Gentiles as well. Here is an enemy of Israel an enemy of the covenant people, an enemy of the covenant on the surface, the Old Old Testament expression of the covenant is now addressed ultimately with the provision of really, really good news. But notice that this is also an act of judgment upon Israel. Here is a nation that God had come to, had spoken to, and now have rejected his word, at least the ten northern tribes, reminding us that if we despise the word of God, God may withdraw himself from us. Certainly has happened in the history of the world, and it's happening at this particular time, In ancient Israel. So her background. Her patrimony if you will. She's Gentile. Notice her place. That is. Where we are told that she. Lives. This particular town. Zarephath. Was probably something like. Eight miles south of Sidon. And 13 miles north of Tyre. Again, 50 to 80 miles north of Samaria. And it was the home of Jezebel's father, Ethbaal. Chapter 16 and verse 31. If there ever was a pagan place, it would be here. Furthermore, her princess, literally, was Jezebel, an enemy of truth. Notice that she comes then from a context of paganism. Phoenicia, the very promoter of Baalism, if we could coin that word. Baal had left her in the pit of hopelessness. She had absolutely nothing, no resources, nothing to lean upon, nothing to serve her son. Notice her person, she was a woman without much by way of rights in the ancient world and notice her predicament, she was a widow with a child in a place where there was no welfare net. There was no one to support her, there was no government pension or social security or anything that would help this woman at all. And we notice her poverty. Her family was either disinterested in helping her, which was the only help she would have gotten. And her husband is dead, so it would be other family members. They were either disinterested or they didn't exist. And we're told something about her passion. Where her thoughts were directed. And it was toward food. Because she didn't have any. She was starving, and the only thing on her mind was finding food for herself and her son. And her prospect? Death. That's all she had to look forward to. That's all she had to anticipate. Let me just fix the last meal and then we'll lay down and we'll die here was a person who was completely impoverished with absolutely no future whatsoever at all all she could do was prepare to die here is the condition of everyone outside the gospel. Here is the condition of everyone who has been made aware of their circumstances by the word. Remember that God said that he had commanded the woman even as he commanded Elijah. Elijah commanded a widow there to take care of you, but she doesn't have anything to take care of him with. She had been enlightened ultimately by the word and apparently by the spirit. How else would she have been commanded by the Lord? But isn't this the way of the gospel? And that was Spurgeon's point in his sermon. And I think it's a legitimate point. Isn't this the way of the gospel? That good news comes to the people, to the very ones who are entirely impoverished and have been made aware of their poverty. You would think that in wanting to communicate to the world and bring the world under the umbrella of the truth that God would would go to the high and the mighty. That God would go to those who are in positions of responsibility and authority and and, and can do something in a really big way. But he doesn't do that. He bypasses all of these people in Israel and he goes to this poor widow who has absolutely nothing whatsoever at all. And isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter one, for behold your calling brethren that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God shows the foolish things of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise. And God shows the weak things of the world that he might put to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised did God choose. Yea, and the things that are not that he might bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory before God. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who was made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And getting a little ahead of ourselves and 1 Corinthians chapter two, Paul says, and I brethren, so those, there's a description of who he came to. Then he says, this is how I came to you. And I brethren, when I came into you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified and as i and i was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of god and isn't what we have here an old testament illustration Of the very things that Paul has introduced. Who is it that God sends, or who is it that receives this reception, this poor widow lady that has no choice but to prepare a meal and lay down with her son and die? Nothing to commend her. To anyone. Well, thirdly, notice the word an obligation in verses 10 and 11. Elijah meets the woman and he gives her something to do. Now, he found the right person. Preaching always does, by virtue of God's electing grace. He bypasses everyone else. Is it the first woman that he met? How does he know who she is unless God speaks to him? And there's nothing in the in the text that would suggest there was a special message this is the woman. Somehow he he bypasses, he selects her. perhaps he knew, perhaps he did not know and spoke to her as if she were the very first person that he met. Real never know at least from this particular text but notice the activity of this of this nameless woman she's picking up sticks to build a fire to bake bread she's she's attending to her business she's going about her business and it's a dismal business she's marked by industry and by extremity she didn't know to do anything else but to be ready to die. And Elijah says, bring me a little water, and oh, by the way, make me a little cake of bread. But I don't have enough. I don't have anything to make for you and to make for my son and myself. Nevertheless, Elijah says, do what I've asked you to do. Make a cake with what little you have. Feed me first and then feed yourself and your son. It almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? Feed me first. But you see, this was a test of faith. Would she believe God's prophet and act upon God's prophet? As someone has said, all of life is a test of faith. Every day is a test of faith. Will we believe God or not? Someone put these words into her mouth. Just what I need another mouth to feed. Be warm, be fed, but above all, be gone. That's sort of a natural response. But she's put under obligation. She's asked to do something. She's asked to believe something embedded in what she's asked to do. Fourthly, notice the word And an affirmation also in verses 13 through 15. She faces peril, she faces certain death. And now she's called upon to waste what she has upon the prophet. And notice the prophet responds to her, I don't have enough. His response is, don't be afraid. In the context, again, seems almost cruel. She had every right to be afraid. She had no resources. She could not supply for her or provide for her son or for herself. The best she could do was prepare a little, lay down and die, and it's all over. She had every right to be afraid. The command of the prophet defied reason. But it's a call to faith, even as God's call to us and the obligations that we're placed under are a test of faith absolutely every day that we live. Will we be marked by faith and ultimately by faithfulness to commands that seem absurd, ridiculous, and impossible to fulfill? Well, of course they're impossible. yet we read this in verse 15 and she went and she did according to the saying of Elijah and she and her house did eat many days. The oil never ran out and the flour never ran out. Now put this in Old Testament biblical terms or the, or put it in the terms of the particular context. Baal is the god of weather. And Baal is the god of fertility. And here as the woman obeyed and believed and obeyed. Ultimately the rain came. And in the meantime, she had everything to provide for herself. And so we discover here the word and confession, fifthly. Her confidence, her faith, was in that word that came to her through the prophet. Because it was the word of God. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Can there be a clearer picture of what faith essentially is? Faith is staking everything upon the Lord's sheer word, waging all upon the veracity of God. What's at stake here is faith. What's at stake here is confidence. Because it's the word, not just of the prophet, but to her. Coming to her, particularly, it was the word of God. And finally, sixthly, we have the word and provision. Notice that the provision went on and on and on and on until it was no longer necessary. It is the God of Israel who provided for her, and she's not even an Israelite. And it's in the context, it's in the backyard of the pagan god Baal, who supposedly would provide all of these things, and he can't. No idol can promise and fulfill the promise of which the Lord himself alone can promise and fulfill. And notice that the drama continued. She had enough oil and enough meal from day to day throughout this period of time. The drama is daily. The call to be a believing people comes to us every day of the week. And that's exactly how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day. Our daily bread may not have tomorrow's bread or next week's bread or the bread six weeks from now, but you shall have it every day as needed. The promise is sufficient for daily use. The bare word of God calls upon us to believe God. And in fact, according to Matthew chapter six, then to go to Christ every day for daily supplies. Dale Ralph Davis writes in in such a extremely orthodox, but he writes in such a um, practical way. He says this, the word of the Lord that brings drought can at the same time sustain whom he wills. And then he says, Pancakes never tasted so good. Pancakes never tasted so good. Daily supply. And so here is a provision that is creative. Here is a provision that is saving. She is blessed and she's saved and she's produ and and, and, and protected while her neighbors perish. because God has set his love upon her and sent a word to her and sent a prophet to her to preach. And the demand upon her and the obligation was to give him everything in return. One Dutch writer put it this way, It's as if God says, give me everything you have, verse 13, and I will give you everything you need, verse 14. It is the Lord's paradox of demand and gift. And Davis puts it this way. And I should have this as the very last sentence of, this sermon, but here goes. Davis says Most of us as believers can never get more sophisticated than this Phoenician widow. I like that. I think that's good. Most of us can't get any more sophisticated in our faith than what was required from this or of this widow. In a very real sense, this is what faith is all about. This is what makes this text such a, a great text. It shows to us something of the various aspects of the word of God as it comes to us and what it demands of us, what it requires of us. And subsequently, what the benefits of faith and faithfulness are really turn out to be? Is the word demanding? Yes, it is. Is the word demanding? Yes, it is. Does the word fulfill all that God promises to us in that word? Yes. My friend Bill Downing said on one occasion, and in this context, he said, everything is a test of faith. promise always follows demand. Living faith is shown in the life. Jesus told his disciples, he tells us, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first. Matthew Henry said, those that venture upon the promise of God will make no difficulty of exposing and emptying themselves in his service by giving him his dues out of a little and giving his part first. Those that deal with God must deal upon trust, seek first his kingdom, and then other things shall be added. God sent his prophet to a widow from Tyre. And in that, he showed through the person of Elijah how the grace of God comes to people and how the grace of God comes to the nations. And it is by believing, promise, and acting Upon promise. Here's the instrumental means of saving, God's saving grace belief and faithfulness. May we be marked by these qualities. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what he has become to us and what he does us how little this woman knew and yet how great was her faith and her faithfulness how much more we know and yet sometimes our faith so little and faithfulness non-existent may we know what it is to behave like this woman and to receive the benefits of of your mercy and your grace. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.